Uh, so my name is Jordan Rice. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. And last week, we kicked off one of the most important topics we can talk about, something called faith and work. Now, what you do for 50 or 60 hours a week, we're, we're thinking uh, it should have some connection to your faith, to something that is so central to you or something that should be central to you. Uh, I did some math and I tallied it all up. And at the end of your life, um, for all the work you're doing, whether inside the home or outside the home, most of us will log about 100,000 hours of work. And that's not even including time stuck on the A train. <laughs> now, it would be a travesty if 100,000 hours of your life was disconnected to your faith. One of the things that churches, including this church and, and us, that we don't do and haven't done a great job of is how to connect the dots of how you approach God tomorrow morning at 9.30 a.m. when you're stuck behind a computer or stuck behind a counter or doing whatever it is you're doing with your life, that that will be connected, meaningfully connected to your faith. Now, the first thing that a lot of people think about when we talk about faith and work is a lot of people think of uh, talking to your coworkers about Jesus, that we're going to spend seven weeks talking you know, about how you spread the gospel at your job. And I, and I don't want to diminish that. I don't want to belittle that. And because that's, I, I would assume, a certain part of what we're talking about. Uh, if Jesus really is central to your life, I guess at some point that should rise to the surface of your conversations. But that is absolutely not just what we're talking about when we talk about faith and work. We're talking about how do you connect the dots from the things that you do, that you do every single day uh, and how do those things relate to your faith in Christ? And how is your faith being played out in a meaningful way at work? Now, one of the things that is so important that we mentioned last week, and I really encourage you guys to subscribe to our podcast and catch up on everything because we're trying to build uh, an argument together over the course of these next seven weeks. One of the things that we saw last week is that God uses all of our work, not just not-for-profit work. Not just spiritual work for pastors or people who are in ordained ministry, but God uses all of our work to care for his people. Uh, whenever you were to pray, God, give us our daily bread, how does God answer that prayer? Does God drop challah bread from the sky? It would be amazing if he did, but no, he doesn't do that. God uses everyone in the economic food chain, cooks, bakers, wholesalers, factory workers, butchers, farmers, ranchers, and everyone in the economic food chain to fulfill his promise. God provides for you through ordinary people and ordinary means. Scripture says in Psalm 24 and 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Think about that concept for a second. Here's what scripture is telling us about the nature of God, that everything in this entire world and every person in this entire world is God's. That means that the arts belong to God. Uh, engineering belongs to God. Mathematics belongs to God. Sanitation work belongs to God. Everything in all of society belongs to God. Now, most of our attitude about work, in, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we almost act as if God is a slumlord that is detached from his creation and that God doesn't care about what's going on in this world. But when you look at the lives of people in scripture, you see that God is deeply committed to the human flourishing, not just our souls, but also our bodies and this world. Scripture teaches us in Revelation that what God is building is a new city. And God is not going to Luke Skywalker zap you out of here, but God is building a new heavens and a new earth. And God wants us a part of that renewal process. 
Now, if you were to ask the question, what is the best, most Christ-honoring way that you could perform your duties at, at your job? It's this, do it well. What's the best way that a pilot can do his job? Land the plane. I was in a plane last night. My wife and I were coming back from uh, Chicago. She was emceeing an event. And as soon as we took off, you know what I'm saying, it was a little rocky. And we looked at each other. And in those moments, I don't want my pilot talking to someone else about Galatians. <laughs> I don't want him meditating on his, you know, the daily bread he read that morning. Bro, I want you flying that plane. All of the prayers that we are praying is for us to get up safely and land smoothly. The most Christ-honoring way for that pilot to fulfill uh, their duty and their role in caring for us uh, and, being, and being God's instrument to care for us is to land the plane. Uh, we have a woman in our small group uh, who's about to have surgery, and, and we prayed for her this week, uh, and someone on our staff whose family member had uh, surgery a couple days ago, and we prayed for them. And all the while we're praying for them, we're praying that the surgeons are not thinking about how do they spread their faith to the nurses and the anesthesiologists. Sis, do the surgery. If you want to have a good approach on how you should approach your job, do it well. This is why Paul tells us in um, 1 Corinthians 10 and 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink, do it all to the glory of God. And we'll get to that a little bit later as well. So even though God created work, and even though God created work to care for his people, work, like everything else in this world, is not what it's intended to be. Uh, throughout theology, there's this concept of something called the fall. And the fall is basically the time in life where our foreparents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God. And in disobeying God, there became a disruption in their relationship with God. So nothing is as it ought to be, including work. Uh, there's a theologian, an old African theologian, um, who talked about uh, life in the terms of disordered loves. That what happened after the fall is not that we're loving the wrong things, but we're loving the right things in the wrong order. If you're not careful, work will become something for you that becomes your identity. Work is a good thing that God blesses and God uses and God honors. But if we are not careful, work will become our identity. Today we're talking about how we have our, our loves ordered in the right uh, direction. And if we're going to have a meaningful relationship between our faith and our work, then our work needs to be ordered in the correct place. I told the story a number of times, um, there's nothing wrong at, at all with loving your work, but if the order in which you love your work is disordered, it could bring ruin to you and everyone around you. Years ago when I was studying for the bar exam, I was coming home on the Metro North train and I was talking to a guy who I guess saw all of this pity in my face of uh, studying you know, like crazy for the bar exam. He recognized the books, and he told me about his life and his job as an attorney. And it was about 11.30 at night, and he was just getting home. And I asked him, oh, man, is this like a really busy season? And he says, nah, man, I, I do this every single day. He gets home uh, at around midnight every day, and he wakes up. Uh, he would wake up before his two kids would even uh, get up. He told me that he would never see his kids except for on the weekend. Now, I hope he loved his job and he might have been doing really good things. The problem with him in his life is not that he loved work, but that he loved work more than he loved family. And that's likely to bring ruin to his family situation, not because work is bad, but because he put it in the wrong place. You and I would do very well to make sure that work is in the right place in our life. 
Uh, I know this very well personally, if I'm being completely honest. Uh, before Renaissance started, I, I remember uh, being in a, a time in life where work truly became my identity. And I, I say that because work consumed me. Now, I'm the type of person that I don't really get a lot of energy from people who doubt me. I, I really don't care to try to prove people wrong. I don't have that much energy to try to do that. But I get so obsessed even when I feel like I need to prove people right. The people who believed in me that I want to prove them right. I remember talking to my grandmother and going to her house in Queens and uh, talking to her about the church plant. And man, she beamed up uh, with the, just she was, she beamed up so bright and she was so happy. And she was telling all of her deaconess friends at Shiloh Baptist in Jamaica that her grandson was going to be, he was a pastor and he was planting a church in Harlem. And I dreamed of a day that she would come to this church and she would be proud of me. In my life, uh, the work became so central that I, I had to succeed because to fail didn't just mean that the project that I was working on didn't go the way I wanted it to go, but in a lot of ways, I internalized it to be my identity, that I needed this to succeed so that I could feel like I mattered. I remember talking to my wife about 10 months into the church plant, and uh, man, she just stopped me dead in the middle of the tracks one day and just said, hey, I don't know if you've realized this, but we have not talked about anything else except for church for the last 10 months. I was like, that's not true. I asked you to get me a bacon, egg, and cheese from the bodega like <laughs> yesterday. I backtracked, and she was like, well, name one conversation that we've had that was not about the church, or were you didn't Jesus juke it right back to being about the church? I couldn't think of one. I was watching, I was self-sabotaging my own marriage. Why, would I, why was I doing that? It's not because I was loving the wrong things, it's because I was loving the right things in the wrong order. I needed the church to succeed so that I didn't feel like a failure. I had attached completely my identity to the church, and that's a dangerous place to be when we do that. Now, here's a great thing about this conversation on identity and work. You don't necessarily have to be a Christian to know that all of us in our lives, all of us, no matter if you're brand new back to church for the first time in a long time, whether you've been rocking with Jesus for 20 years, uh, if you don't know what you believe about the Bible or about Jesus, all of us, we all do these three things. All of us look to something for our value, for our significance, and our security. All of us are in a desperate search all the time for something that makes us feel valuable. Why do you matter? All of us are on a desperate search for significance. Who am I? How do I stand out? And all of us are in desperate searches for security. What is it that makes me feel safe and good, that things are going to go right in the future? Now, Christianity offers us something that is much better than attaching our identity to work. It gives us an identity that we don't achieve, but one that we receive. Here's the most disconcerting thing about having an identity that you can achieve, something that you can work for, something that you can earn. If you can earn it, you can lose it. So even if you earn it today, you can lose it tomorrow. Now, I don't have the stamina emotionally or spiritually to fight for my identity every single day, and the good news is that Jesus does not want us doing that. He does not want us attaching our identity to our work. Um, so the as good and as godly as work is, it cannot bear the weight of our identity. You and I are eternal souls, eternal souls, and we cannot accept something finite uh, to label us and to give us our identity. 
So where do we get our value? Uh, what you look to for satisfaction in life is where you're getting your value. Uh, now, even the good things that God created as good, including work, is never uh, intended to be what it was in the first place. We cannot seek work for our value because work can't give it to us. Here's what it tells us in, Galatians, in I'm sorry, Genesis 3, 17 through 19. It says, And he said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from, from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. What do we see in the scripture here in Genesis? Uh, we see in the scripture that work under sin becomes a painful toil. Work in and of itself is not a curse, but it falls under the curse of, of sin and the fall. And the thorns and thistles will come up as we seek to grow food. Now, in this analogy, gardening represents all of our human efforts, all of our human labors, and here's what it is getting at, um, that all of our work will somehow end up in frustration and a lack of real fulfillment. It's not as beautiful as it was intended to be, and part of the curse of work in a fallen world is frequent, frequent fruitlessness. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book called Every Good Endeavor, uh, he writes it like this, what do we mean when we say work is fruitless? We mean that in all of our work, we will be able to envision far more than we can accomplish, both because of a lack of ability and because of resistance in the environment around us. The experience of work will include pain, conflict, envy, and fatigue, and not all of our goals will be met. For example, you may have an aspiration to do a certain kind of work and perform at a certain kind of level of skill and quality, but you may never get, you may never even get the opportunity to do the work you want to do. Or if you do, you may not be able to do it as well as it needs to be done. Your conflicts with others in the work environment will sap your confidence and undermine your productivity. The field in which we work in is full of thorns and thistles. Now, here's what I know to be true. Some of us are going to be fortunate to see glimpses of what God intended for your work to be. There will be days, maybe even a week, a project, something that goes as planned. But even the best thing that you've ever done will lack the permanence to give you your value. As soon as you are done with it, you're going to be thinking on to the next, on, on to the next. One of the most, uh, the saddest things, six people got that. One of the saddest things <laughs> about watching uh, amazing athletes like uh, Kobe Bryant, uh, uh, you would watch an interview with Kobe after they won a, a championship, and three days later, he was talking about the next year. I was like, dude, you just scored like 40 points a game. You would think that if anybody could sit back and kick their heels up and enjoy the fruit of your labor, it would be you. And immediately he's talking about the next year, talking about the next project. The day he retired, he was talking about this videography company that he was starting, and he was getting back to work. Why is that? Work cannot give us the value that we want because it lacks the permanence that we need to actually have an identity rooted in it. All of our work lacks the permanence in which we desire. And as a result, it's a really terrible place to attach our identity um, because it's going to make us very fragile people, always seeking to earn more. Uh, there's a scripture in Jeremiah. Uh, it's an old scripture that you guys might have heard. And it, it talks about the danger in trying to attach our identity and, and our value to, to work. 
Uh, the author, Jeremiah, says two, he says this, my people have committed two sins. And I'm like, well, God, I think your math is a little off. I've done way more than two things. And he continues with two of the most heart-wrenching things that you can hear in all of Scripture. Here's what he says about it. He says, my people have done two things wrong. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, which are pots or clay pots that people put water in, cisterns that are broken, that cannot hold water. Here's what he's saying we have done. We have forsaken God. We have forsaken a trust relationship with God where we sought our value from him, and we have created our own things that cannot hold the water. They cannot hold the value of your life. Um, secondly, work can also be our significance. Uh, it can be the thing that we look to to get a name. Uh, Genesis 11, uh, 2 through 4, it says it like this, and this is the story of the Tower of Babel. It says, as people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks, and they used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. And here's the part I want you to pay attention to. Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. What were these workers working for? To make a name for themselves. Because deep down inside, they didn't feel like they had one on their own. Now, I've seen this happen so much in my own life, and I've also seen this happen in other people who are working a job that they think is kind of beneath them. Uh, they're working a job that they don't feel like it's as significant as they want it to be, and here's what they're actually relying on for that job to produce for them. And here's what um, we're believing when we think that our job is not significant enough. Our job is not giving us the name that we want. Our job is not going to make us feel important. Our job is not going to make us feel significant. So actually, it's, it's drudgery. We're putting an attachment on work to do something for us that it was never intended to do. These people in the Tower of Babel, what they were relying on was that work would give them something that made them feel significant about themselves. Uh, there's a scene in Rocky too, and the older I get, the more I realize that this analogy is running really, really thin. There's only half of you who were alive when Rocky II came out. <laughs> I need to watch Creed too and, and start quoting from that movie. There's a line in, in Rocky II where Rocky's sitting on the edge of the bed, and he's talking to Adrian, um, and yo, yo, Adrian, and... Um, <laughs> He's, he's talking to Adrian, and he's about to fight Apollo Creed the next day. Apollo Creed was a champ, and he looks at her, and he says, Adrian, if I could just go 15 rounds with the champ, if I could make it 15 rounds with the champ, then I'll know that I'm not a bum. What is he doing? He's saying, if I can do this, fill in the blank, then I'll, ma then I'll matter. I'll have significance. Now, most of us would never, ever want to step into a boxing ring. I know I don't have the endurance for it, but all of us have that same fill in the blank. If I could just do this, then I'll matter. If I can just achieve this one thing professionally or vocationally, then I'll know that I'm not a bum. Now, here's the crazy thing about that. Uh, most of us who are seeking significance from our work, we're seeking it from people who cannot give it to us. The same people that you're seeking for their acceptance and their praise, they are as fickle as the NYC weather. There's a scripture, and there's scriptures all throughout the book of John where it says that Jesus ran away from people, uh, people were trying to give him praises, and it says because he knew what was inside them. Later in Jesus' life, as he is marching to the cross, um, when he rides into town on Palm Sunday, 
on a donkey and this crowd is screaming, Hosanna in the highest. You are the one that has come to save us. Five days later, these same people are screaming, crucify him. The people that were looking for to give us significance will scream, Hosanna one day and crucify him the next. Uh, we look for significance in all of the wrong places. It's temporary and it's fragile. And it was never meant to give us significance in our lives. Uh, the last thing um, we see in this, uh, that I want to point out about our identity is uh, we search, we're searching for security from our work. So not just value, not just significance, but also security. This feeling that I'm going to be all right as long as I have this. How would you fill in that blank? I'm going to be cool as long as I have this lined up for me. Uh, there's a, a book of the Bible called Esther, and it's a phenomenal book of scripture. Um, it's one of my favorites. Uh, Esther has so many things in it that are just absolute gold. And uh, there's this one part of the story where Esther, who was this queen of all of the province of Persia, um, she gets news that there's this dude named Haman who's grimy and who's going behind everybody's back, and he's trying to get the king to kill all of the Jews. Esther happens to be a Jew. Her cousin Mordecai had his ear to the streets, and he heard through the grapevine that, yo, this dude, this dude Haman is trying to uh, run game, and he's trying to get the king to kill all of us. And he goes to Esther, who's living in the palace, and he asks Esther to risk everything she has to fight for her people. Esther was Gucci. She didn't have to worry about anything on her, on her own. Her people, however, were in danger. Theologians have marked that for Esther, uh, the decision for her in front of her would determine whether or not her palace would become a prison. And that prison would be that she would have to reduce herself and make compromises and not do the thing that she knew in her heart was a right thing just so that she can stay in her rightful position, that she would not risk her reputation, that she would not risk her standing, that she would not risk her place. Here's one of the worst things about even getting success. Some of the success that you and I pray for could turn into a prison. And now we're not willing to make decisions that might endanger the success that we've reached because now we're placing our security in this job. So if you hit a fork in a road, if you hit a fork in a road where you can follow Jesus or you can follow what's going to keep you in good standing at your job, it's a tough decision. And however you answer that, you're going to see where you put your security. Uh, this, some of you guys work in jobs, uh, very difficult positions, and I, and I don't in any way want to make this seem like it's, a, it's an easy decision for you to do. But if we're going to have a faith that actually works in all situations, we're going to have to make sure that we're actually finding our security in Jesus and not in our jobs. So where does that leave us? Uh, we need an identity that is received, not one that is achieved. We need an identity that is given to us that can never change not one that we have earned based on us doing a good job at work. I've mentioned this a number of times. Uh, my mother, when I was about 16 years old, became uh, a judge uh, in the city I grew up in. And I remember having my driver's license and driving around in the city where I knew she was a judge. And I had seen her interaction with police. Police would come to the house to get a warrant signed, and I would see the way that they would just be so deferential to her, and I knew the police answered to her. So I would get pulled over, and the cop would come up to the window, and I'd put my license out, like, yo, peep the last name on that one, player. Go ahead. <laughs> do what you got to do. You ain't, if you write a ticket, I ain't paying it. Because my mother was a judge. Now, I had, no, I had done absolutely nothing to earn what I was doing, 
but I had true rest in knowing that I was a child of the one that was in authority. Here's what Jesus wants you to rest in, the fact that he is the one in authority. He is the one that can give you the value that you and I are in, in desiring. He's the one that can give us the significance that we so long for. He's the one that can give us the security that we truly long for. So children of God, I want to remind you who you are, and I want you to rest in this. Your identity is not something you're going to earn, but it's something that you're going to receive. And I pray that these words from Scripture hit your heart. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 6 and 20, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. You want to know where your value is? You were bought with a price. Years ago, uh, Barry Bonds, 756 home run ball, sold for over three quarters of a million dollars. You might look at that home run ball and say, it's just another baseball. I can get one like that at Models." But to the person who spent almost a million dollars on it, it was worth a whole lot. What are you worth? What, were you, what are you worth? Scripture says that we were bought with a price, and that price tag was not cheap on your life. It was a sinless, sovereign son of God. Where can we get our significance? What can make you feel like you matter? Rest in these words from Jesus. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs of your head have all been counted. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Rest in that. Where can we get our security? Jesus tells us in John 28 through 29, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can ever snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Rest in that. Now, it's one thing for me to talk about this, but what we thought would be really great uh, is if we heard from other people in our community who were wrestling through this issue of their identity and their work. And these people represent a variety of different professions. And do me a favor and please welcome out to the stage Shayla, Ellen, and Marcus as they come out to the stage to share their story. Thanks so much, Jordan. Hi, everybody. My name is Jessica, and I am excited to have Shayla, Marcus, and Ellen with me here today to share a little bit about their experience when it comes to reconciling faith and work. So um, let's start with having each of you just kind of go down the line and share a little bit about your work journey. Shayla, we'll start with you. Um, so I graduated from Spelman 2014, uh, came straight from undergraduate to graduate school, like I was told I should, um, and began that, then graduated on time. Um, and really, I just feel like most of my institutions told me, you do your internships, you work hard, you get the job. Um, and that's how it is. And it didn't happen that way for me. I didn't get a job right out of school. And then I did get a job um, out of corporate archives I studied decorative arts, design history, and material culture. Right, like a lot of us. I saw your guys' head roll back into your eyes. It's fine. I, like, um, into your head. But um, really, I did fashion studies, and so I got a job at a corporate fashion archives, um, but then was under pretty terrible management there, and then hastily left to another job where I was extremely undervalued. Um, and then January of 2018, I was let go with no notice, so I was suddenly in a completely different space of not having any type of employment, which was something I was not familiar with. Um, and I struggled with that a lot. And then um, was able to get a retail position. And despite all my networking, 
um, and other things I was told I was supposed to do, the application that actually went through was a cold application to the New York Times. Um, and so now I work in the New York Times in their photo archive department. Very cool. Right, you can clap it up. Yeah. <laughs> um, I received my uh, Bachelor of Arts in Theater at Morehouse and then uh, went to uh, FSU to get a Master of Fine Arts in Acting. Uh, so in 2008, after getting my, uh, my MFA, I moved to New York uh, to pursue acting. And uh, I had given myself a timeline of about two years. I was like, two years, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have made it on Broadway, and it's gonna be great, and people are gonna know my name. And uh, nah, that didn't happen. Um, so after about four to five years of working different jobs to pay rent and going in audition after audition and receiving rejections and uh, booking about five or six plays that I did not get paid for. Um, I started looking at what I was doing and, and thinking, okay, um, maybe I'm supposed to be doing something uh, more important, something that I enjoy, but something more important. So I decided uh, to pursue teaching. Um, so I uh, entered the New York Teaching uh, Fellowship um, and taught uh, special education um, at the same time, was in school while teaching full-time, uh, getting my Master of Science in, in uh, special education. And then after teaching for almost three years, was like, okay, I missed the connection to the arts. I'm going to leave teaching and I'm gonna pursue acting again. And so I did that for a little bit and I was like, all right, um, <laughs> pockets are looking a little empty. Uh, so I went back to uh, an arts education organization that I worked with previously, uh, Opening Act. Um, they had a full-time position for an assistant director of programs. Uh, so I took that. Um, a couple of promotions later, I am now the interim director of programs at Opening Act and uh, still doing a little acting and directing on the side. And what does Opening Act do? Yeah, we can clap that up. But oh, I will definitely tell you what Opening yeah, Act does. a little yeah. bit about Act, Opening Act. Uh, opening Act brings free, uh, high-quality theater programming to high schools uh, and students that are underserved. Um, so we go into schools and we run sustainable after-school theater programming. And uh, we got a fundraising campaign right now. Uh, <laughs> All right, now you're going Facebook. too far. I'm just saying, you asked, Jessica, you asked. That's good, that's good, that's good. Ellen. So um, I graduated from college with a degree in nursing, and I got my first job um, working in an intensive care unit at a children's hospital. After working there for a few years, moved to New York and worked in a few pediatric ICUs here. And after about five years, um, five years into my career, my husband and I decided to make a big move, and we moved to Peru. We had both had dreams of using our vocation to serve the poor, to share Christ, he was in finance, and I was in nursing, so we went with this microfinance organization called Hope International. Um, and while we were there, I volunteered at a clinic um, as a nurse some of the time, and, but mostly spent time working on this economic development project with him. Um, after about a year and a half, we made the hard decision to move back to the U.S. and to leave working with Hope. And shortly after we got back to New York, we had our first child. Um, I stayed home with him for about a year, as just a mom, not doing anything else but hanging out with my baby um, before I started grad school and then was a full-time grad student. And when I finished grad school, I had another baby and was home with him for about a year. Um, now I'm fortunate to get to work part-time as a primary care nurse practitioner, and then I'm at home with my kids the rest of the time. Nice. 
Great. So you can see a really diverse array of experiences here, which is great. Um, so my first question is to you, Shayla. Um, has your work been a factor in terms of shaping your identity? If you would have asked me this a year ago, I would have said no. Um, but that's also because I had a job, so my identity really wasn't challenged that much. But when I didn't have that, I quickly realized that I placed a lot of worth on what I did. Um, and I also, unfortunately, couldn't divorce the fact that if I placed a lot of my own worth on what I did, I probably placed a lot of other people's worth on what they did as well. Um, and that's really unfortunate, and I don't like to think of myself in that way, but that was something I had to come to terms with. Um, and it was a very foundation-shaking time, uh, just because, like I said, I've been very confident in my work and my abilities up till this time, but I've also been affirmed in those abilities and work up until that time. Um, so I really didn't have anyone, or I wasn't questioning myself um, until I realized if my work was my identity, then I, didn't have very, I had very little. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, how about you, Ellen? Because you, I mean, have had a really different set of experiences from working outside the home and in the home and all kinds of things. Has, you know, work I, um, informed the way you see yourself, your identity? Yeah, it definitely has, um, sometimes more than others, but at most parts of the journey. Um, and my first job, when I was working in the intensive care unit, I was spending all of my physical and emotional and mental energy for that job, and it felt like almost my entire identity. Um, I would get offended if I felt like people didn't recognize how special or difficult my job was. Um, I got annoyed when people talked about how stressful or busy their work was. And it was really isolating, um, because my identity was so deeply embedded in that. Um, and then we moved to Peru, and you know, most people didn't really know or care what I did in the U.S., and so um, that identity was, was, again, gone, and it was really, it was, it was, um, it was difficult. Um, and then, of course, anyone who's had a child has gone through this, especially um, women who've stayed at home with them. Um, when I had my first son, and we had newly moved to Harlem, everyone I was meeting was new, and everyone just saw me as a mom. Um, and so during that year, I often vacillated between trying to um, have that old identity that I would had as a nurse and be proud of that, or either, either that or overemphasizing my role as a mother and putting too much of my identity in that, neither of which were good feelings and neither of which um, could really handle the weight of my identity. Yeah, wow, that's deep. Um, okay, so now Marcus, you obviously as an artist and actor have dealt with a lot of different things, rejections I'm sure in the auditioning space and um, as you described, you set out to do one thing and life has kind of turned out in different ways. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, as you found yourself in spaces where things weren't going the way you thought they would, um, how that made you maybe question God or relate to him, see him differently. Can you share some of that with us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, uh, as... As an actor, um, it's like Jordan said, one of the, the, the pitfalls of, of this identity thing is placing your significance uh, on other people. And as an actor, you're sitting at a table basically begging somebody to find value in me, find value in the work that I'm doing. And so 
a rejection or even a, a lack of acknowledgement while you're pouring your heart out um, digs deep. And so one of the questions uh, that I began to ask God was, um, God, why place something so deep in my heart that is just outside of my reach? Um, and I still struggle with that. And, and um, I don't know, it, it, it made me, I'm not quite sure how it uh, put in uh, perspective um, who God was or, or, or what God was for me, um, but uh, it did affect my ability to trust and let go and let God. Um, and I had to remind myself that God is not some cosmic genie that is here to grant every one of my wishes, um, but that there is possibly something greater and, and a path that I need to try to open myself up to. Wow, that's really profound. That's great. Um, okay, so now I want to hear as a final question from all of you, um, and this can certainly be a work in progress um, answer, just how your faith is informing the way you work or, or how you approach work, how you see work. Um, definitely work in progress. I am learning that I still um, seem, I still rely on myself and think I can do my own saving and a lot of my identities really, my identity and a lot of my relationship with Christ is centered on me rather than on him and rather than what he's done for me and who he is. Um, and so that becomes difficult because I am infallible um, and I'm not going to get this right. So there's that. But also um, in the steps of kind of reconciling my relationship with work, um, my relationship with my identity and Christ, I have learned to be more vulnerable and rely on my community um, because community is so important. They're just a physical manifestation of God's love for you and his pursuit for you when you sometimes can't love yourself. So when I was unable to really see the value in what I was doing, which wasn't a lot work-wise, um, my renaissance, my faith family came in and stepped in that gap for me. Um, and it was able to reflect what, how God sees me even when I wasn't able to see that in myself. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's beautiful. Marcus? Um, I had to stop. I had to start praying uh, that not my will, but God's will be done. Um, in uh, partnership with that, um, I prayed that God would change my heart, um, that I would be able to look at whatever the path uh, that God was taking me on as not detouring from where I'm trying to go, but uh, just something even greater. Um, I think through that, I've been able to open myself up to a possibility that I never imagined. Um, I get to run programming for uh, an educational uh, 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 theater program, um, which is two of my loves. I, 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 I love teaching and, uh, and, and now the theater component and uh, I get immeasurable joy from working with my students and teaching them how to create, uh, not only create theater, but create theater that matters. Um, so um, it's really about, for me, uh, just having uh, been able to open myself up and not look at uh, what my peers uh, have been able to accomplish, but uh, focus on uh, my own journey with God and, and my work. That's beautiful, yeah, and you, Ellen? 
So I've started to see my work um, being what I do every day because it's looked very different at different seasons of life as valuable to God and meaningful. Um, you know, when I, when I was in Peru and I had gone with this idea of wanting to be a nurse there and it didn't really pan out the way I wanted to, I spent, it, I spent a lot of time working on this economic development project and my daily tasks weren't things that I found a lot of joy in. But ultimately, it allowed a lot of people the opportunity to hear the gospel, which wouldn't have happened if I had continued doing what I wanted to do and what I thought I was there to do. Um, so, you know, I saw that, that my plans aren't what God's plans are, which the Bible is full of, so it should never be surprising to any of us. But it's so hard for us to, to grasp that. Um, and, you know, now, if now I spend time in the professional world and time at home with my kids and if someone sees me as just a mom, that's fine. I don't really care anymore um, because I know there's value in whatever we do, whether it's um, you know washing dishes or cooking or changing diapers or cleaning the floor. I've started to see the spiritual value of simple tasks like that. Um, and now when I think about God's plans for my life, it's much less tied to a career or a job. And it's more of what does God want for me on a daily basis, the quiet obedience that he asks for me, and the ways that he can use me in really unexpected ways. That's awesome. Thank you so much, all of you. Thank you so much for sharing, because I think there's such an array of work and professions represented here at Renaissance, but I'm pretty certain that all of us can see pieces of ourselves in the things that you shared. So can you guys help us in thanking... Shayla, Marcus, and Ellen, and um, I'm going to take a moment just to pray for them and pray for all of us, so could you bow your heads with me? God, I am just so thankful for um, my sisters and brother here on stage with me. God, thank you for how you um, have showed up in their lives in really meaningful ways. Thank you how you direct them, and God, I pray for... Um, them to just uh, be emboldened, to take whatever work it is that you put in their hands and to use it as a means to glorify you. And God, I pray that same prayer for all of us. God, that we would um, not look down on whatever work that you've put in our hands or not esteem um, too high the work that you've put in our hands. God, would we have the right perspective when it comes to what you've put before us, God, that we would see it as a means to glorify you first and foremost, that you would help us to prioritize it accordingly, um, to not love it too much, God, but to um, also just see it as a way to um, lift up your name um, in this world. Um, God, I pray that uh, you would help us to look to you and you alone for our value, our significance, and our security. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.